Well, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Luke, chapter 7. Uh, continuing our journey through this uh, big gospel. It's a lot packed into this uh, book of the New Testament, and uh, thankful that we can spend time together in it. We look at chapter 7 today. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 35 specifically. Uh, so Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. As you make your way there, let's pray for the Lord to guide us in this time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask now that he would be present to illuminate our understanding and bring about the work of transformation that we need all for your glory. So Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever doubted. Of course, we've all doubted at some point in time. We doubt a lot of things. It could be something very simple as doubting that the weather will actually cooperate or doubting that our particular team that we're fans of will actually have a successful year. Those are minor things, but there are major things that we doubt. Sometimes those doubts come and go when least expected. Even when we're given proof of something, we tend to be a skeptical people, don't we? But what about Jesus? Have you, have you ever doubted Jesus? Do you ever have doubts concerning who he is or what he has done? How God is at work in a particular way? You know, there are certain circumstances that, if we're honest, that can lead us into doubt. Maybe a job goes south. Maybe our health takes a bad turn. Maybe someone we know, very dear to us, is gravely ill or has died or a variety of different things that could happen that can press into our lives to cause us to question God. What happens when one doubts the Lord? I'm not simply talking about the unbeliever. We know unbelievers doubt. But what happens when you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, have some serious questions about Jesus? What do you do? Do you ignore those doubts? Do you suppress them down deep within and just hope that they'll go away sometime? Questions that you may have, maybe they're not exactly doubts, but they're questions. You just ignore them. Well, in our passage today, you see a trusted man of God expressing question, maybe doubt, we could say, as to whether Jesus could be the true Messiah. Not only do we see his doubt expressed, we're, giving a, we're given a detailed account of how Jesus responds to him. Let's pick up now in Luke chapter 7. Let's read this account beginning in verse 18. This is what the word of the Lord says. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two, his, two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, 
John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many, uh, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had, messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the uh, the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. You see, John's struggle was a genuine struggle. And in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of his questions and doubts, he sought answers. And Jesus provided for him. Really, one of the things that we take away from this passage as far as the big point is yet another confirmation that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, that he is the one who came to deliver his people. And as we consider Jesus and John's interaction about whether or not Jesus is truly the Messiah, I want us to walk through this text this morning in four sections, and then I want to follow up with that. I'm just going to walk through in four chunks of this passage to kind of describe what's going on. And then after that, I'm going to come back and draw out five points of application that we can see from this text. Okay, so four points just kind of give us the, the feel of the text, what's going on, and then five points of application at the end. So we're going to begin here, first of all, with the first observation from this text, and we can refer to it as an honest question. First thing we see is an honest question. In verses 18 through 21, that's exactly what's going on. We need to know, uh, Luke doesn't give us this detail like Matthew does, but Luke, or excuse me, John, John the Baptist, is in prison when he's asking this question. And he's struggling. We know that the disciples of John go to him to visit him in jail, in prison, 
And they give an overview of what they have seen concerning Jesus. They're, so they're just explaining to John in jail what Jesus has been doing. And John pulls two of his disciples and said, listen, I need you to go ask Jesus this question for me. Ask him, are you the one that is to come or shall we look for another? It's an honest question. Are you the one? That's not quite what you would expect from John the baptizer, John the Baptist. I mean, he was indeed the forerunner. He was the one prophesied to come and prepare the way of the Lord. He's the one who did that. He's the one who baptized Jesus. He's the one who said of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And here he is now, later, in prison, and genuinely wondering if Jesus is in fact the Messiah. There's one of the things this text shows us that even some of the strongest of believers can struggle with genuine questions. But why? We're not really told exactly why John's struggling. It could be a number of reasons. It could be that he's in jail and he didn't expect to be there. And if he's the forerunner, why is he in prison? Could be that. We're not told that. But if you notice here, the question comes after his disciples, John's disciples, come back to him, report to, G- to John what's, what Jesus has been doing. And so he's been given a presentation. He's been given a, an overview of what, G- what the ministry that, that, that Jesus has been doing, what that looks like. And it's after that that he sends word back. And so maybe, more likely, that as John receives news about the ministry of Jesus, He then poses this question because it doesn't sound like that Jesus has been living up to all the hype of what the Messiah would actually do. Remember, the Jewish culture was expecting, anticipating a Messiah, and most of them were expecting or anticipating a political revolutionary. A lot of talk today about revolutionary and revolutions. Well, in their mind, they were thinking this was, this was our, our time and, and this was our moment when Jesus would come and deliver us and overthrow us. So they were thinking political. They were thinking military. They were thinking something far greater than just a, a miracle worker. Well, all this was, well, all that Jesus was doing was clear that he had been sent from God. Certainly miraculous, certainly important, certainly powerful. But could he really be the Messiah? I mean, yeah, we'll take him, we'll put him on our team because he, he can do good things, right? But, but is he really the Messiah? Seems that his doubt begins to emerge because the ministry that Jesus is doing doesn't fit John's preconceived notion or expectation of what he thought the Messiah might do. John, at least many others in that culture, perhaps John at this time, likely expected something very different. And when that didn't transpire, when that didn't come about in the way that he anticipated, he began to question. Friends, it might be easy from our vantage point, and certainly it's a lot easier from our vantage point to, to look at all of revealed Scripture and all the revelation that we have here in Scripture and pick on John for his doubt. But as we'll look at here in just a moment, 
we too can have doubt rise in our hearts due to wrong expectations. See, we have an honest question, but then number two, we see a clarifying answer, and that's in verses 22 and Verses 22 and 23, we see Jesus gives the answer. And he answered them, go and tell John. So back up to verse 21, the disciples of John asked Jesus the question. And in that hour, Jesus performs many miracles. You see that in verse 21. He heals diseases uh, and plagues, evil spirits, gives blind sight. So he does all these miraculous works. And then he answers and says, go tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus receives John's question and he answers him. Notice what Jesus does and does not do. Jesus does not chastise John. He doesn't rebuke him for his question, but he seeks to reassure him of what is true. It's not a simple yes. John doesn't send the question and Jesus says, well, of course I'm the one who is to come. He doesn't give a simple answer like that. He does more. He responds with a description of his ministry with, first of all, an example yet again in verse 21 as he heals other diseases and gives the the sight or gives the blind sight. And then he goes and says, go tell John what you've seen and heard, and he gives this list of things that he's been doing immediately and, and before now. And this is all language. All of these terms, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are healed, etc. All of that is Old Testament language that the prophets used to describe the work of the Messiah when he would come. Jesus says, tell John what you have seen. And heard. He sends word back to John by showing him his ministry is in fact in alignment with exactly what the prophets had predicted. He grounds his work in Old Testament expectation and actual evidence of the accomplishment and the fulfillment of these prophetic expectations. You see what Jesus does? John asked this question, are you the one is to come? And Jesus doesn't just say yes. He says, let's look at the word. Let's go to scripture. Let's hear what the prophets said and let's see what I've been doing and see if they gel. That's what he does. He uses Old Testament language, prophetic language that anticipated the coming of the Messiah. And he says, this is exactly what I've been doing. I've demonstrated. And so he tells John's disciples, go tell him what you have seen and heard. You see, his ministry may not have fit the mold of what John or other Jews would have thought, but it fit the mold with exactly what the prophets predicted. He came to rescue those who were in bondage. All of these miracles, exactly what what we see here as he lists these out, all of these are true miracles. He truly gave blind people sight. He truly cleansed lepers. He, He truly allowed the, or caused the, the deaf to, to hear and raise the dead and, and all of these things that we see. 
These were actual miracles, but these miracles, as we've been seeing, pointed to something greater, a greater work that he would accomplish. All of these were practical examples of rescuing people who were in great bondage. And all of these visual illustrations of real healings and real miracles pointed to the greater miracle that God would do through Jesus. And it wouldn't be something limited to that era or to that time. Note the beatitude that he gives in verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Literally, blessed is the one who is not tripped up by me. So he gives John an answer. He points him back to the Old Testament scriptures. He points to actual evidence of what he's been accomplishing in light of the Old Testament prophetic expectations. And he calls him to believe. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is part of the message that he is to send back to John. Not only tell him what you've seen and heard. Tell him all that I've been doing. Tell him again and again and again. But tell him, tell him that blessed is the one who is not Offended by me. In essence, he's giving John an answer and calling John and others beyond John to trust him. For John, it would have been, John, keep believing. Keep trusting and you will be blessed. So Jesus gives this clarifying answer. But he goes beyond that. Would have been enough to end in verse 23 and go to chapter 8 or to the next account. But he doesn't. He goes further than that. Number three, we see an edifying confirmation in verse 24 down to verse 30. When John's messengers had gone, so Jesus gives them the message to take back to John, and they split. They go back to John. Then Jesus turns and addresses the crowd. There would have been a crowd around hearing this and perhaps even thinking, wow, John's asking this question. You know, I thought John was this, this guy that we could trust. And now he's asking, and now maybe there's doubt in their minds because of John's uh, so-called doubts. But notice what Jesus does. He's more than generous in his response to John. Not only does he give him a reassuring answer, he goes on to assure the crowd that John himself plays a crucial role in the work of redemption, that God had been placed, grand narrative of redemption, that, that John played a pivotal point in that as he was the forerunner, as, the one, as he was the one who came to prepare the way of the Lord. It's a kindness of Jesus, isn't it? I mean, John's truly struggling there in prison. He's struggling with, with the question as to, could Jesus truly be the Messiah? And, and now Jesus gives him an answer, and he's telling others how, how, how great John is. He confirms the ministry of John, and he does so in a variety of different ways, but you see some rhetorical questions that he asks, beginning in verse 24. And again, we, we're not sure exactly, you know, perhaps this was a, a grace that Jesus extends as a way to, to save John from losing credibility, uh, because you know how quick we all are to criticize the faith of others, right? We see one little slip and we're like, ah, oh, shame on them. Could have been that, we don't know, we're not told that, but Jesus moves in now to, to assure the crowd of John's place in all this. And these rhetorical questions, he said, what did you go out into? The, many of these would have been uh, under the, the ministry of John the Baptist. And he said, what, when you went out to the wilderness to hear him, what did you go see? A reed shaken by the wind? Certainly not. You didn't go to see uh, either literal reeds or maybe it's a, uh, 
a metaphor to describe John in weakness. You didn't go out to see a weak man or reeds shaken by wind. No, not at all. Did you go see a man dressed in soft clothing? That would have been expensive clothing, lavish clothing, right? Well, certainly John didn't have that. You didn't go see that. You could see that in the king's court, in the king's palace. You didn't need to go all the way to the wilderness to see someone dressed well. Not at all. What then did you go see? He says in verse 26, a prophet. Indeed. But a lot more than a prophet. A lot more than a prophet. Notice what Jesus says in verse 27. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus points back to the prophet that prophesied about John's coming and and affirms and confirms his role that he was in fact the one that would prepare the way of the Lord. And then verse 28, notice what Jesus says, blows our minds. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. This imprisoned doubter, none is greater than John. How in the world can Jesus say that? Why? Why does he say that? He's affirming John's role as a great prophet for sure. But as he does so, what would lead Jesus to make a statement like this? I mean, he could have just said he's an important person. He could have said, yeah, he he came to he's he's the one that came to prepare the way for me. He's important. He's he's valuable. He's part of this great this great plan of redemption. But no, he goes further than that. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than this man, John. And it wasn't because he was a Baptist, right? As the forerunner, John fulfilled a unique role. He was the last in the line of Old Testament, Old Covenant prophets who were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. But he was also the one that would see the Messiah's arrival. He was the lone prophet that stood in that gap between the old covenant and the new covenant era as the one pointing forward to the Messiah and yet the one preparing the way for the Messiah and the one that visibly saw the Messiah come and arrive. He holds this position of greatness because the role he fulfilled can't be copied or compared to anyone else. I mean, who else could be that, that, that person that stands in the gap between the old and new covenant? It was John. He prophesied and he saw the fulfillment of the prophecy. He was that one. And so Jesus calls him great because of that position and that unique role that he had played. But we know that verse 28 doesn't stop there, does it? Jesus goes on and says, yet, yet. The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. While John holds this position of greatness, the role he fulfilled is nothing compared to those who actually enjoy the benefits and blessings of the kingdom. You see, John was there to point to the king and to the arrival, to the inauguration of this kingdom that was to come. John was there to, to pave the way forward for the, the king's arrival. But, and Jesus said, born of women, there's no one greater because of that unique role he played. But I tell you this, yet there is, 
Even, even those who are least in the kingdom of God are greater than John because those who are in the kingdom are actually recipients and those who are blessed, enjoying the benefits of the kingdom, the very thing that this new era would provide. So Jesus confirms all of this and then moves on to number four and gives a warning, a pointed warning there in verses 31 through 30. There in verse 29, Luke kind of, uh, in almost in a side note, verse 29 and 30 says, When all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So, so you see, Jesus is saying all this, you're seeing the varied responses. Lawyers, tax collectors, excuse me, lawyers, Pharisees, religious leaders, they're, they're not buying it. Others, like the tax collectors and sinners, they're, they're starting to get it. And then Jesus gives this warning. Verses 29 and 30 prepare us for this parable that we see in verses 31 through 35. And in these next few verses, Jesus turns from speaking about John and those who inherit the blessings of the kingdom of God to those who specifically have rejected him. He addressed the people of this generation and gives this parable. It's a parable about complaining children. All right? Some scholars refer to this as the parable of the brats. It's a great way to describe it. In essence, he's saying this generation is like children who will play with others, but only if they're able to play by their rules, if they're the ones that get to call the shots. The religious leaders in particular are likely the ones in target here, the Pharisees. Because they didn't think they needed John's message nor Jesus' message. You see in verse 31, he says to them, What shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. So there's this, this, these children that are calling out to other children in the marketplace saying, We had our songs and you didn't want to play. You didn't want to play with us. And indeed, Jesus didn't play to their song. Jesus didn't dance to their music. And so they rejected him. As verses 33 and 34 show, they charge both Jesus and John with wrong and give reasons as to why they weren't following. You see that. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you, and you say, he is a demon. So they were critical of John. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so they reject Jesus. So this is a warning. To which Jesus responds, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, those who do respond to Jesus' message and, and all that John had been pointing to and what Jesus had confirmed, those are indeed wisdom's children. It's a warning to the generation not to follow these complaining children, but to follow Jesus. So you see that Jesus does much more than merely answer John's question. John asks a genuine question. Are you the one that was to come? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus goes above and beyond in answering that, doesn't he? He answers it with evidence and goes on to confirm John's role in the ultimate blessing of being in the kingdom and rebuking those who reject it. 
So what do we take away from this? Let me just point out several points of application for us this morning. First of all, when we come to this passage, one of the things that I think that this text can help us with is, first and foremost, we need to be honest with our doubt. Be honest with your doubt. Even for the Christian, doubt can creep in. You may be a committed believer and struggle with faith. I think sometimes we assume that if someone struggles with their faith or doubt that surely they can't be a Christian, we almost write them off. Yet there are times when doubt and faith do reside in the same heart. You remember the father of the boy with the unclean spirit? And he said to Jesus, if you can heal him, will you? If you can, and Jesus like, if you can. And they go through some dialogue there, and the father ends up replying to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That's an example of faith and doubt in the same heart. I believe, just help my unbelief. I've got questions. The difference between, though, an unbeliever with doubt and a believer with doubt is what you do with it. For the believer, questions and maybe doubt will drive you to seek Jesus, just like John did. He wanted to get an answer. He he wanted to know. Friend, I think I would just be mindful as if you have doubts, if you have questions, if you have thoughts about scripture, about who Jesus is or what he's done, understand that even some of the greatest figures in scripture, the greatest among born among women, had their questions too. It's what you do with your questions. Understand that some of the greatest in Scripture struggled making sense of all that Jesus was. John struggled, but he didn't let those struggles linger. He didn't suppress them. He sought answers and he sought them in the right place. Brothers and sisters, if let me, let me just say this to us. If you, knew, if you know other believers who may be struggling with faith, with doubt, they have questions, do not chastise or condemn them. Do not shame them. Do not act as if they are beneath you or somehow a stain on your presence. Be prayerful and be patient. Love them. Lean into conversation with them. Be an ear for them to speak to. Be present in their lives. Remind them of the truth. Point them, just like Jesus did, point them to the truth. Jesus says, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. We know that it is God's word that will open understanding as the Holy Spirit applies the truth to our lives. We know that it is the Holy Spirit and it is the word of God that will bring truth to bear upon our hearts and give us assurance. It is not your job to give assurance. It is not your job to be convincing. It is your job to be patient, to be prayerful, and to point to where the truth is. So if you see believers struggling, don't abandon them. Do not abandon them. And friend, you may be here today and you may be the one that is struggling with doubt. You may be the very one that has questions. You may be watching this on the live stream and thinking, I've got questions about Jesus. I I don't get this, this, and this. Let me just tell you that 
it's okay to be honest with these questions. It's okay to be open and honest about doubt, about things that concern you and things that you don't quite have figured out. And let me just tell you this, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church is a safe place for you. We're not going to chastise you. We're not going to condemn you. We're going to hope to love you and to move into conversation with you and to help. We're going to listen. We're going to love you. We want to be present to, to walk with you through those questions. Number one, we should be honest with doubt. Number two, be quick to check your expectations. John raised the question about Jesus likely because Jesus wasn't fitting the mold. He wasn't living up to the hype that, that everyone expected. Friends, just a reminder, we all have ideas. We all have preconceived notions. We all have expectations that are not informed by Scripture as to how we think God will work or do something. All of us have that. You think, okay, I expect God to work in this way or that way. We all have these ideas, but listen, if those expectations, if those ideas are not informed by the Bible, then you're going to find yourself in a very similar place when God isn't living up to your expectations. We must be careful that we don't impose our expectations on the Lord. Jesus was clear that he was fulfilling biblical expectations as he leaned back into Old Testament language to describe his ministry. Listen, be careful to distinguish what you imagine or what you think may be versus what God has actually said and what God actually may be doing. We must let scripture inform our perspective of who Jesus is and what he came to do. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. There's a lot of Christians, they wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole because they think they're holier than thou. I've heard people say things like, maybe you said this, you know, I like to think of God as. That's a dangerous, dangerous statement. God isn't up for definition when he has revealed himself clearly in the scripture. The Lord's ways may not always fit your ways. The Lord's thoughts may not always be your thoughts. And as an extension of that, we should be careful even how we check our expectations about other Christians and other ministries. Certainly, we need to be discerning. Certainly, we need to make sure that people are preaching the gospel and being faithful to that. But we need not write people off as if they're being unfaithful if they're preaching the gospel. I, I, this week, I had to repent of an attitude I had towards someone else because in another ministry, another church elsewhere, because of what I thought. But they're preaching the gospel. We need to check our expectations. We, we, we need to remember that we're not sovereign and that we're not Lord overall. Yes, we need to go to Scripture. We need to understand how God has revealed himself, but he may not work in the exact same way that we expect or anticipate, and we need to be okay with that. Number three, kind of in conjunction with the first point, is bring your questions to Jesus. We know John had some doubt, so instead of criticizing Jesus... He reaches out to him directly. A novel idea, isn't it? He doesn't criticize Jesus via early church Twitter. He doesn't ditch Jesus. He reaches out to Jesus. Friends, when you're struggling, when your faith is being challenged, when your expectations fall short, when you simply don't understand God's ways, cry out to him. Cry out to him. Ask for his help. 
Jesus is able to handle your questions. Jesus is able to handle your doubts. You know, I'm thankful for texts like this. Here we have John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, a bold preacher and prophet, right theology, and he struggles. One of the things that I think is a, an affirmation of the sufficiency and errancy of the Bible is that the Lord gave us examples like this. This would have been easy just to kind of ignore. It doesn't make John look good, nor the early church, or at least the development of the, the ministry here. It, it, you know, it's like you can't have like the greatest prophets ever doubting. I mean, that's just, that's bad storyline, isn't it? It's right here in the text. Bible doesn't shy away. The Bible is very transparent about the genuine struggles and doubts of people. I appreciate that about the scripture. It's transparency. It calls our attention to struggles of, re- of real struggles of faith. Friends, we all will have questions. What do you do with them? You bring them to Jesus. He's big enough to handle them. He won't condemn you for having doubt. He won't reject you if your faith is shaky. Cry out to him. And by the way, one of the, one of the things we could take away from that is one of the blessings of being part of a local church is where you sit regularly under the teaching ministry and discipling ministry of other Christians, where we're able to be encouraged in the truth together, where we can flesh out these questions with one another and go to the same source of truth. We all don't come bringing different sources of truth today. That's what the world does. They have all these different uh, uh, relative sources of truth where they go and have their own. Tw- we all have the same, the same truth that God has given us. And when we have our questions, we go to the same book, we go to the same Lord, we go to the same place, and we wrestle together. And it's one of the beauties about being part of the body of Christ is that in our moments of struggle and wrestling and, and questioning and doubting, we can be encouraged and prayed for and, 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 and people speaking into our lives, and we can go to others. You know how it is when you feel like you have no one to go to when you may be struggling with a question about something. In the local church, you have other Christians who are ought to be a safe place for you to bring your questions about Christ, about the gospel. And again, if you're here, if you're here, if you're watching, if you're here even today and you're not a Christian, we certainly, again, we, we want this to be a safe environment for you where you can come with your questions and not feel like you're being attacked. I understand that Christians do a poor job at times. We say foolish things. We come across arrogant. Friends, we, we are here to talk with you. We're here to help deal with the questions you may have. And so, please, don't be afraid to come and engage us in questions. Bring those questions to Jesus. Bring those questions. Number four, be confident in the substance of Jesus' ministry. Listen, Jesus' ministry was not one based merely on claims. John asked him if he's the one who was to come, and Jesus does not respond with simply a yes. I am the one to come. He responds with yes, but he gives evidence. He draws from the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies about him that use the same language to highlight the very things he's actually been doing. He bases his affirmation of who he is upon Old Testament promises 
and New Testament fulfillment. It's objective. It's an objective faith. Jesus is not just throwing out claims for you. Just believe this and believe that. No, he, he demonstrated very clearly who he was. He's not making baseless claims. He demonstrates his authority to make these claims through the miracles and through his teachings. Friends, that ought to be one of the greatest encouragements to us as it, regarding our faith and regarding the ministry that God has called us to. God in his kindness have, has given us the full record of who he is and what he's done in his word. The Old Testament looking forward, making promises. The New Testament giving testimony to the fulfillment of the Messiah and the promises being kept. Friends, our faith, our lives, our ministry is not based on mere claims of a Jewish carpenter some 2,000 years ago. Our faith is built upon the objective truth, built upon evidence, built upon promise, built upon fulfillment, built upon the very things Jesus came to accomplish, and those things have been verified and recorded for us in Scripture. Friends, our faith and our ministry is built on substance. It ought to encourage you in how you follow Jesus and the ministry that you do, that we can serve in confidence because of what we have seen and what we have heard. And then number five, rejoice in your kingdom status above all else. Jesus' definition of greatness and the world's definition of greatness are quite different. John is described as the greatest born of women, and yet those who are even least in the kingdom are greater than he. John, the greatest born of women. But if you are a citizen of God's kingdom, you're even greater than he. Listen, brothers and sisters, the most important thing about your life is not your education or your job title. I know there's a lot of money spent in that. That's not the most important thing about you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the most important thing about you is the fact that you belong to God's kingdom. There's no greater privilege. There's no greater status. There's no greater position in the world than to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's a good reminder because we are pushed, we are pushed, we are encouraged from the day we're born. We're pushed and pushed and pushed to pursue greatness in so many other ways and places. I'm not saying it's wrong to try to be successful and to try to do what you do well. You should, and as, as a means to glorify God. But the point is this, is that your greatest identity is not found in the things that, that the world may say about you, your greatest identity is what God says about you, and that is that you are part of the kingdom. You're a citizen of the kingdom. You're the bride of Christ. Why do you think that this was such good news to the poor? Why do you think tax collectors jumped at this moment to rejoice to the outcasts of society? Why do you think they were so thrilled Fellow Christian, do not fall into the worldly pursuit of greatness. Cherish the greatness you have in Christ above all else. Let that be the identity that is over all others in your life. To know that it is the greatest of all blessings, the greatest of all privileges to be considered among those the redeemed. Friend, you may be very well hearing this and realize that you've been seeking greatness in all the wrong places. You may be seeing for the very first time today that Jesus' definition and the world's definition are two very different things, and you've been on the world's end. 
But friend, it's Jesus' definition that matters. Jesus said in Mark 8, verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Friend, understand that Jesus is indeed the one who is to come. He's the one the Old Testament promised that would come. He would be the true sacrifice for sin. He died in the place of sinners so that all who look to him and trust in him by faith will be forgiven of their sins and counted among the greats as citizens of God's everlasting kingdom. That's true greatness. And that will last you all into eternity. All other pursuits are temporary. So, is Jesus the one who is to come? Is he the Messiah who came to deliver people from bondage? Indeed, he was and he is. But friends, don't take my word for it. Take his. But not only his word. Look to his work. Look to his word and see what he has done. And there you will find assurance. And there you will find true greatness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us this morning from Luke's gospel. For this account, an encounter of Jesus and John the Baptist and this dialogue that is so transparent and yet clarifying for us today. Lord, my prayer today is that First, if there are any that are here or via our live stream that are they're struggling with questions and doubt in their lives, Christian or not Christian, Lord, would you give them the courage and boldness to seek answers, but to seek them in the right place, to seek them from you, to seek them maybe in conversation with other Christians that can point them to where they need to look. Father, would you help us never to cling to the world's answers or to the world's expectations, to our own expectations of what we think ought to be or what our view of you is that would not be driven by our own perspective, but, Lord, that it would be driven and firmly built upon your word. God, forgive us when we have drifted and forgive us when we have expected things of you and these are things that have never been revealed by you. So, Lord, would you search our hearts today, and, Lord, where, there, where there's questions, where there's doubt, would you, would you fill those? Would you answer those? Would you come to us and help us to know what is true? Pray that you'd help us as a church to grow in our faith, that we would be able to patiently and lovingly help others. That we would reflect the character of our Savior, who models quite well in his interaction with John how to love others who may be questioning. Father, would you search all our hearts today and would you draw us to yourself in repentance and would you help us to have the courage to to lean into hard conversations and to lean into these kinds of things with grace and with wisdom. And Father, we just want to stop even now as we think about this whole account and just rejoice in the grace that you have given to call sinners to yourself and to give us the highest privilege above all other privileges in this world to be part of your kingdom. God, would you help us to rejoice in that identity above all others? And with that 
compel us and motivate us to move out into this world in our lives, to love our families, to love our community, to love our neighbors, to love our nation and this world with the glorious news of a glorious Savior. Father, thank you for giving us this word today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.